It is indeed a pleasure to be with you. Um, number one, um, because we are all the family of God, and I find it a joy whether I'm in North Carolina, South Carolina, um, anywhere else, that um, God's people gather to be instructed by His Word and to worship Him. Um, whether we are singing, whether we are teaching, um, whether we are the listeners, we are all engaged in worshiping. And what we're seeking or should be seeking is a greater knowledge of the King and then engaging ourselves into His work and to His labors in the world. I first want to say thank you for allowing me to come and be with you this week. I find it as much pleasure as anyone to be in your midst. Um, I am amongst family, so I probably will get a lot of, you know, criticisms. I'm just joking. That was a joke. It is good to be with family, with friends, with um, both on the um, family part of the kingdom of God and biological. My wife um, is at home. She, I reckon she may be up by now. I'm not sure. Don't tell her I said that. Um, I pick on her about being a late sleeper, but we have two younger children. We like to allow them to sleep as long as they can sleep. Um, I want to ask you a question before we even look at the text this morning. What does it mean to experience revival? And what does it look like to experience revival? And we use that word every year, especially in the southern context. What does it really mean? What does it look like? Is it something we cultivate, or is it really just the work of God? Historically speaking, when revival occurred, it was when God's people had been pursuing a greater vision of His glory, a greater vision of Him. And the way they were pursuing and seeking this was by praying, was by inviting Him to absolutely consume their lives, to make himself known in a fresh, powerful, life-transforming way. What does it look like when revival occurs? What does it look like in the culture? I believe personally, historically, and I would make a case from the Scriptures, that when we really experience revival, God's people are transformed and the culture is impacted and shaped in a manner that is wholly different than it had ever experienced. I believe that two elements are necessary for, to bring Revival. Well, the primary would be the working of the Spirit, obviously. The other two would be the people of God seeking God's face in prayer, inviting Him to work, and then the right preaching of the Word of God. God's people must not be divorced from a right understanding of His revelation. If it's anything I have been taught by the Spirit of God, 
is how important it is for me to not only listen to the Word, but to submit to the Word. And there's a difference. We can listen every Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, whenever you gather together as the people of God, and leave thinking, man, what a great message. That's awesome. But the question is, am I submitting to what I know God has revealed to me this morning? Here's what I want to invite you to do today. As well as with myself. Listen to the text and then willingly submit to it. Say, God, I beg of you, radically transform me into the image of Christ Jesus, that I may be better fit to serve in your kingdom and that I may be a part of your great redemptive plan throughout all of history. Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 14. Here is my desire and my aim this week, is to look through Philippians. And I want to highlight a few, I believe, truths that Paul reveals in Philippians. Number one is this. True satisfaction comes through intimacy with the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me say it in the way that John proposed in the Gospel of John chapter 4. That Christ alone is the source of satisfaction in this life and in the next. In other words, the Christian life is not about heaven. It's about Jesus. And since it's about Jesus, it's as much about this life as it is the next. Secondly, I believe we see in Paul's writings in Philippians is this. The supreme value of preaching Jesus, of making the most of Him, of exalting Him above everything anything and anyone else is supremely enjoying Him. And I believe we find that in the Apostle Paul. And thirdly, I believe we'll also discover the necessity and the pleasure of gospel-centered partnerships. The supreme pleasure of gospel-centered partnerships, partnering with others in the gospel to bring glory to God. This morning what I want to look at is blazing a path for the gospel. I wish that I could teach every section of Philippians. It has become a book that inhabits my heart. God has just put it in me. I've seen the life of Paul lived out in Philippians. And it is a lot that the people of God must learn from Philippians. But I realize in a short amount of time I don't have the ability to do it all. Some say I'm long-winded, so I'm going to try my best to be timely while exalting this great Savior that much is to be said about. Blazing a path for the gospel. If you are able, would you stand with me while I read Philippians 1, 12 through 14. Philippians 1, verses 12 through 14, the apostle writes, But I want you to know, brethren, that the things which have happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel, so that it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. And most of the brethren in the Lord, verse 14, 
having become confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Father, we evoke your presence and your power to be in our midst this morning. We simply need an understanding of who you are. We need a fresh encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ this morning. And so I pray that you would open our eyes, that you would manifest your glory, and that we would leave altered and changed for all eternity by this experience of being together to worship you. In essence, we ask God, you just show up. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And you may be seated. Internal lasting satisfaction describes the longing within every man's heart. I don't care who you are or where you're from. There is this desire to be satisfied. I mean, we eat because we want to be satisfied. We get hungry, we eat, and obviously I eat a lot. We need internal satisfaction. God has created us with desires. He's not left us without desires. These desires that we have, God created us with them. He, does, he, he has created us with longings that move us forward in life in some capacity. If we had no passions, if we had no desires, if we did not seek some form of satisfaction, we probably would not propel forward. And so there's these satisfactions, these in, in, intense, intense desires that we have, have been created and given to us by God. It's part of what it means to be human. I would say that we have a craving for intimacy on two levels. In other words, all of us have a desire to be intimate on some level. We desire closeness. We desire relationship. We desire to be, if you will, in relationship with one another. We desire relationship to um, help, if you will, bring comfort, to bring support, to bring security, to provide fellowship. One reason we probably come on Sunday mornings is to be around the people of God in the fellowship, and rightly so. I believe there's this desire that God has given us for relationships and intimacy occurs on two levels. One, and primarily, is that of the craving to be intimate with God. There is this internal desire to be intimate with our Creator. In going to India, a very distant land where there's what we call polytheism, many gods. You'll find statues on the side of the road, strangest thing I've ever encountered in my life, where people would go and they'll literally bow down to these gods or leave gifts. Um, these gods are taken care of, um, cleaned, and, and being sure that no trash is around. They, they worship these physical images on a daily basis. But if, is anything that was a revelation to me was this. No matter how far you go across the world, you will find that there is a longing and a craving for intimacy with the Creator, with something greater than ourselves. And there's a desire for intimacy on another level, a desire to be intimate with one another, to be in fellowship, in partnership with one another. You know, the second can break down in multiple ways. Um, for the most part, at least most of us desire intimacy within marriage. And what I mean by that is a close-knit relationship between a man and a woman, husband and wife, 
living life together in the deepest parts of what it means to have fellowship. We crave that. We long for that. Now, some people are gifted in the area of, of celibacy, not needing a um, physical partner, not needing a husband or wife. But for the most of us, we crave a marital relationship. And even if we don't crave that, we still crave relationships with other people. Now, I find this interesting how Paul is bringing these things together in one book. In Philippians, Paul is really, if you want one big theme for, for, Philipp, for Philippians, it's this. It is unity in the gospel through humility for the glory of God. And what Paul is doing is he's writing a missionary letter. He is a missionary on the field. He's being supported by the Philippians. They are people who, and you'll find at the end of the book, that regardless of what Paul encountered or where he found himself, they were faithful to write to him, to provide for him, and to send the relief that was needed to support him in the gospel ministry. Even when he found himself like he does now when he's writing um, to the church at Philippi, even while he's in prison and being, if you will, for all um, um, societal purposes, he's being oppressed even it will find in verses 15 through 21, we'll find that Paul is actually being oppressed by other so-called fellow believers who are ridiculing him, who are, if you will, lashing out at him, who are undermining his ministry. And yet the people that remain faithful to him in the midst of this is the church at Philippi. And what we find in Philippians chapter 1, specifically, I believe, is we find the Apostle Paul who is finding great intimacy and satisfaction in a relationship with Jesus Christ. Primarily, we desire intimacy with God. Paul has it. And then we find secondarily that Paul's finding fellowship with the church at Philippi. He's finding satisfaction in, on some level, this secondary level of wanting intimacy and relationships with other human beings. He's finding it with the church at Philippi. And it is a beautiful, it is a beautiful thing that is a, a beautiful natural element that God has created for us wanting intimacy. And it's allowing, um, if you will, Paul and the church to further the gospel of Jesus Christ to the nations. And that's what we find in the book of Philippians. Paul himself is finding this deep satisfaction in Christ. And in doing so, we're going to find this morning that no matter what situation he found himself in, he was able to look at it and say, man, I rejoice. I praise God that even though I'm in prison, the gospel is at work. How do we find that? How do we have satisfaction in the midst of evil circumstances? How do we find ourselves absolutely joyful and absolutely content in the midst of evil circumstances that we cannot explain. You know, one of the famous verses of Philippians, in Philippians chapter 4, is Paul, if you, say it, um, if you will, says, I have learned in whatsoever situation I am to be what? Content. Now listen to me. I believe that oftentimes we take that verse completely out of context, and here's why. We miss that the reason Paul is content is not because of what he has, what he owns, or what he knows, but because of who has him. Paul's content because he is absolutely satisfied in the person of Jesus Christ. And that idea, that truth, if you will, fills the entire pages of the book of Philippians. And if we believer, if we brother and sister in Christ can ever learn this in our life, 
then regardless of what circumstance and situation you find yourself in, you too can be not only content, but you can be joyful. You can be worshipful in a prison that in Paul's case locked him down to the point that he could not preach publicly, but what he could do is worship, is praise. He could rejoice. Now, a little bit of information that would help you in the background of this is Paul is actually the church planter for the church at Philippi. If you turn to Acts 16, you don't have to do that, but if you look back in Acts 16, you'll find that Paul is preaching in Macedonia, near Philippi, and he cast a demon out of a lady and it hurt the economy of the local rich men. And so they drag him off, him and Silas, they drag him off to be, if you will, imprisoned because they've hurt his economy. It's got nothing to do with whether he delivered a woman from demonic oppression. He got in their pocketbook and they didn't like it. We know how that is, right? Man, he didn't like that. They didn't like that. So they imprisoned him. And so the prison that Paul was in at the time was, a, um, if, if I understand things historically, was that it was dark, it was dingy, and it was a place in which oftentimes the human waste would flow through as they flushed out um, the, the um, if you will, the underlying waterway system of the city. And Paul and Silas in this nasty prison and dungeon for preaching Jesus. And you know what they begin to do? They begin to rejoice. They begin to sing. And something miraculous happens. The walls of the prison begin to shake. The walls fall down. And Paul and Silas are still there. And there's a centurion, which is a soldier, who was guarding them, who was, suppo- who was about to kill himself out of his honor. And Paul says, don't kill yourself. We're all still here. Man, that must have been good worship. <laughs> they ain't even left. And the guy immediately looks, he looks at Paul and he says... What must I do to be saved? In other words, the question could go like this. What must I do to enjoy the contentment and the satisfaction that I see that you already possess? I want to know this. What holds you joyful, Paul, in the midst of crisis, of evil circumstances, of a nasty, dark, dingy, stinky prison, Paul? What keeps you where you are? And Paul says what? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And I paraphrase it this way. You will enjoy the same satisfaction that I have. Let me ask you this morning. Is that what you desire? You desire to be satisfied to the deepest levels of your being in such a way that regardless of the crisis you find yourself in, though you may be weeping and mourning, you know... This is okay because Christ is my satisfaction. Let's see how this works itself out in the life of the Apostle Paul. Paul is writing back to the Philippians. He's already thanked them for their partnership. He is in prison as he writes to the church at Philippi, by the way, as I've already stated. And so place yourself in Paul's situation. He is writing to a church that has supported him financially, emotionally, in many other ways, and now he's in prison for preaching Jesus. I bet that was quite a letter, letter, wasn't it? Most churches, honestly, probably were like, man, that guy's in prison. 
We're going to leave him alone. He must be in trouble for something. But not the church at Philippi. They were faithfully giving, faithfully praying, faithfully supporting the Apostle Paul. And so Paul's writing back and saying, thank you for your partnership in the gospel. And then because he's writing a missionary letter, because he's writing somewhat of a report letter to them, this is what he says. Verse 12. But I want you to know, I desire you to know, church, brothers, that the things which have occurred to me, a.k.a. me being in prison, they have actually turned out, or rather they have turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. What is he talking about? Paul's talking about his imprisonment. He's talking about those who are, if you will, undercutting his ministry and are slandering his name. All these sufferings and persecutions that Paul has has and is facing. He says, I want you to know, rather, they've turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. You see, in other words, what the enemy meant to hinder the furtherance of the gospel, Paul said God is actually using to further it. Now here's a truth we can learn about being a result of being satisfied in Christ is this. It causes us, number one, it causes us to rejoice in the fruitfulness of evil circumstances. It causes us to rejoice in the fruitfulness of evil circumstances. You say, Joel, there's fruitfulness in evil circumstances? It can be. You see, oftentimes what we fail at is looking at the circumstance from this perspective of eternity, from the perspective of the living God. In fact, oftentimes we forget to look at the evil circumstances through the eyes of the gospel and what it's going to do to further the kingdom of God. We limit it to our own, if you will, personal endeavors and experiences. We say, God, this is painful. God, this is costly. God, I'm uncomfortable. And I'm an American. I'm supposed to be comfortable. Amen? Right? See, that's where it hits to the heart of who we are. What defines us, the gospel or the American dream? Because if it's the American dream, then I cannot look at evil circumstances as being a possibility of God using it for the fruitfulness of His kingdom. But rather I look at it and say, man, it's costing me too much. I can't be a part of that. But listen to what Paul says. This is a very fascinating text to me. Maybe you can already tell that. But listen to what he says. Paul says, I want you to know that the things that have happened to me had rather, has rather um, turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. The implication here is this that those that are arresting him, those that are persecuting him, those that are undermining his ministry, they are seeking to put a halt to the gospel going further into the nations. They're seeking to, if you will, put a plug in the work of God. And so Paul is writing back to the church at Philippi. Can you imagine them thinking, man, this is our premier missionary. I mean, this man is passionate He's a great preacher. He's anointed by God. He's doing a great work. He's planting churches everywhere. And now he's on lockdown. He can't travel. He can't preach publicly. Man, what are we going to do? We're in crisis. I mean, we're, we're concerned about the furtherance of the kingdom of God, the furtherance of the gospel to the nations. We're worried about what's going to happen now because Paul, our premier missionary, is in prison and quite likely may lose his life. Well, see, what Paul is doing in verse 12 through 14 is he's giving them a reason to rejoice. And he's saying, I want you to know something, that what, if you will, the evil world meant for bad, God is meaning it and using it for what? Good. 
Do we not see that theme in the Old Testament through the life of Joseph? <laughs> he says, what you meant for bad, God meant for good. You say, how do you see that in the text? Well, verse 12, he says this. He says, but rather it is turned out to further the Gospels. Two words that are very important here that blow up or blow open, if you will, this text. And one of them is where he says in verse 12 that it's turned out for the furtherance. And he said, That's the, what's, the big, what's the big deal? What's furtherance? Well, I would ask the same question. But in the original language, it actually gives a word picture. You know what a word picture is, right? A word picture is when you say a word and it brings to mind an illustration or it's associated with an event so much that you cannot help but think about what occurred. Let me use an example, and this just came to mind. 9-11. What comes to people's minds in the United States? Destruction in New York, right? Same idea here. It was a word that had been used for a particular event, so much so that, a, that it immediately came to mind when someone used this word. That's what's going on with Paul. And the word he uses, man, I just think this is neat. I hope you'll like this. And I hope it'll help you kind of grab onto the truth here. But the word literally was used for um, a, a military strategy. And what would happen is, before the army would cross over into the neighboring or into the um, to the um, to the enemy's territory, they would have what they would call trailblazers, and then trailblazers would actually go into the woods, clean out any debris, any trees, any hindrance to the further movement of the army. And so they would go and they would clean trees out, they would move houses, whatever needed to be moved out. These trailblazers would go before and remove everything that would hinder the furtherance of the military in order for them to conquer the next area, to overcome the next city. And Paul purposefully is using this word to communicate to the Philippians that I want you to know, God's got a strategy. And even though what you see seems evil, even though this event in life with me being in prison, with me suffering persecution, even though to you it looks like that it's hindering the gospel, in fact, God's doing something new and fresh. He's cleaning out the way for the gospel to go forward to the rest of the nation. Because it's not about me, Paul says. It's about the gospel and the kingdom of God. Amen. You see his focus here? He says, my imprisonment, me being in jail, seems to be a horrible um, situation. It seems to be evil circumstances. But I want you to know that it's furthering the gospel rather than hindering the gospel. Hey, you know what? I thank God that even when the enemy thinks he's won, his head has been crushed. I thank God that even though evil circumstances can almost can usually evoke in me this sense of depression, God's on the outside saying, Don't worry, boy, I got this. You see, being satisfied in Christ, finding Jesus to be the purpose for which I live, and the gospel to be the purpose for which I thrive. It causes me to rejoice. It causes me to, if you will, be at peace when evil circumstances occur. Because, listen, when God's in control, fruitfulness comes out of seemingly destructive circumstances. You say, give me an illustration. I will. One of my favorite. Jim Elliott was a man who was passionate about the gospel. 
He was a man who simply and absolutely was committed to reaching the nations with Jesus Christ. And so he moves to Ecuador. And then he, um, it, camp, by campaign, I guess you could call it, because he's a passionate guy, he invited four other men to go on this mission with him. And what they did is they went to Ecuador and they were serving, and Jim discovered the Aqua Indians. And in discovering the Aqua Indians, Jim realized no one had ever got the gospel of them because they were savages. What do you mean savages? Well, they were people who speared people to death. They had oil rigs that tried to get in over there, they killed them. The other people tried to go into the Aqua Indians and they would slaughter them. They were just the type of people who the way they defended themselves was not by winsome words and debate, but by spears. And so Jim said, you know what? The gospel is much more important than my safety. The gospel of Jesus Christ is much more important than even uh, my comfort. And so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to set out a plan. And we're going to reach these Aqua Indians. We're going to put feet on the ground. We're going to reach these people with Jesus. And so he does it. An elaborate plan. They make out. And they get to the island. One of his buddies had to learn. And they had to figure out how he did this. He learned how to drop, while he's in there, drop gifts to the Aqua Indians from the sky. So they could pick it up. Just to win favor with them. But when they do, they said it's time for us to go. He said, set this elaborate plan. All of them are married and have kids. They fly in. To this, the kids and the family stays behind. These five men fly in to the Aqua Indians, land the plane, get out, and begin to build relationships. And at first it goes well. They're there for three days, if my memory serves me correctly. And on the third day, men with spears show up and kill all five men. Slaughtered to death. Jumeli was 27. Premier theologian. Great preacher of the gospel. Passionate about his king. Slaughtered. Dead. They were what? What were? What God? What good is this? He's trying to obey you, and he does. But little did people know that he had a wife that was committed as committed to the gospel as he was, and she soon took her daughter, and they moved in with the Indians and began to preach Jesus. And begin to love the most martyrous people. And one man comes to faith in Christ, and the whole tribe begins to change. And now, listen, let's fast forward 50 years later. You know what that tribe is now? They're a gospel preaching, missionary sending tribe for the gospel. Mm-hmm. Hey, listen, can I tell you something? When you're content and satisfied in Christ, I'll tell you what happens. You rejoice in the fruitfulness of evil circumstances. Because you realize, I don't know what's ahead. I just know that in today, Christ satisfies me and he is worthy of my absolute entire commitment to his work. Mm-hmm. And so I can rejoice. Wow. You mean Paul was thinking that when he's writing 12 through 14? Absolutely. And I want you to know this morning, if you will, if you will absolutely find yourself satisfied in Jesus, you too can rejoice even in certain evil circumstances. It don't mean they're not sad. It doesn't mean we don't cry. It don't mean that we don't mourn. What it means is our perspective is eternal and it's not temporary. <coughs> that our perspective is from God's perspective and not from our own personal endeavors. Number two, I believe that Paul tells these people that our faithfulness to rejoice in the midst of evil circumstances will actually testify to the opposition 
of our satisfaction being in Christ. Listen to what he says in verse 13. Paul says, These events have rather turned out for the furtherance of the gospel, and this is how it's done it. Verse 13, So that it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. He said, well, that doesn't seem to be that big of a deal. Well, Paul is speaking, if you will, in a way saying my past and my present circumstances have turned out in such a way that the world around me sees that my life is not my own, but rather it is Christ Jesus. You see, here's something you need to know about the Apostle Paul. The Apostle wasn't just an apostle. He was a brilliant man, well-educated. One time in his life, I believe he was financially well off. He was a man who was a Pharisee. We find that out later in Philippians. He was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He was a sharp, brilliant individual. They said if he lived today, he's probably the, the smartest, most intelligent philosopher who would even live in our day. And there's a lot of smart folk out there, and I ain't one of them. I'm just telling you, he'd be a very smart person, very educated. And yet, here we find Paul in prison. And the one thing that identifies him more than anything to these men is not his intelligence, not his winsomeness, not his ability to persuade, but rather the fact that he is in Christ. Listen to what he says. He says, all this stuff that's happened to me has actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel in such a way, my rejoicing, they understand does not come from my circumstances, obviously, I'm in jail. But rather they see, not just believers, unbelievers see, that my source of satisfaction and rejoicing is in Christ and not in myself and my circumstances. He says the whole palace guard and all the rest. What is he saying here? The whole palace guard were the guards. It really probably extended far beyond that and probably meant that anyone within this area of influence in the palace begin to understand that Paul's sufferings, his, if you will, the reason that he was in chains was in Christ. In fact, some scholars, and I believe this to be true, think Paul means this when he talks about the chains there. He's not talking about his imprisonment directly, but primarily he's talking about, man, I'm chained to Jesus. He's the one that I'm bound to. He's the one that I identify myself with. He's the one in whom I find my identity. So everything I do, and where I live, how I live, what I do, and my goals in life, they're all consumed by the person of Jesus. I am His to use as He pleases. They understood that. You see, this isn't just the fact Paul's writing to the church at Philippi, but I just think about this. Even Paul being in prison is allowing him to testify to the high officials that his satisfaction is in Christ and that Jesus Christ is the Redeemer, and that in Him alone is their salvation. It's not just in His freedom they experience that, but in His imprisonment they see that Christ is the King, and He satisfies. Paul used a theological phrase here that we can read over. He says that my chains are in Christ. Paul used that a lot in his writings. So what does he mean by that? He means this. I, was, I said it, and I'll say it again, because many of us need to not only understand this intellectually, but we need to, if you will, grab onto this spiritually. Paul's identity was not in his job. It was not his bank account. 
Paul's identity was not in being a Roman citizen, which he was. Very similar, by the way, to what it means to be an American citizen. That, that did not identify or describe who Paul was. But his identity was in Christ. Hey, let me ask you a quick question that came to mind while I was sitting there singing. What if revival, what if a fresh experience with the living God meant that it cost you your freedom from the United States? What would you choose? What would you choose? You see, that all goes down to your identity. Showing up for church on Sunday morning, that's not your identity. That doesn't mean you're in Christ. What it means to be in Christ and that my dignity is in Him is that regardless what comes my way, regardless of, of what is thrown at me, I am satisfied in Jesus. You can take away all my rights in the, in the United States and I'm still free because I've got Jesus. Because my pleasure, my satisfaction, my joy is absolutely in Him. Now, this is has practically living out in Paul's life because those who are imprisoned in him, they see that his sufferings, they don't sway him. They are testifying this man. He's in Christ. He is secure. Not by us, but he is secure in Christ. You see, I believe that our faithfulness to rejoice, you say, Joel, I want to be... I, I want to be a witness to the outside world of the gospel. I'll tell you one primary way you can do that is when you face evil circumstances, I'm not saying jump around, skip around, shout and holler and get saved. Thank God. No, but inside, the outside world can see whether you are content and satisfied in Christ or not. <laughs> they can see it whether you think they can or not. Right. And so you want to be a witness for the gospel <coughs> best ways to do it in a world that's full of evil and a world that's full of destruction is you just absolutely find yourself identified by the person of Jesus Christ and they will see the gospel. They will see Christ in you. Third and lastly, listen to this. Another result. So not only does it cause us to praise in evil circumstances and to rejoice, and not only does it is our faithfulness in the midst of that testified to the outside world, but it, it makes an effect on surrounding believers. Listen to what he says in verse 14. And most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident by my change, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Here's what Paul wants them to understand. It's not just that the palace guard is being affected by this. It's, it's not just that what has occurred to me is furthering the gospel it's not just that a result of it is the palace guard is seeing that I am in Christ, which, by the way, would probably cause them to hunger for Christ, which, by the way, the church planted in Philippi was by a palace guard, or at least he was a help to that, being converted because of Paul's faithfulness to rejoice. So they understand all these things. They're connecting with Paul's writings here. But Paul says, I want you to know it's affecting the brethren also. How is it affecting? Well, he says this. He says that our faithfulness to rejoice in evil circumstances, it emboldens fellow believers to proclaim the gospel. Listen to what he says in verse 14. I believe a better translation is this. And most of the brethren, having confidence in the Lord, by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. You know what I believe Paul is saying here? He's saying that what has occurred to me has actually given 
the brothers in Christ a greater confidence in the Lord. In other words, you would think Paul being in prison would cause people to say, whoa, man, it ain't worth it to me. I think I'll just step aside and forget about preaching Jesus and just live my life in comfort, which, by the way, some people do. Am I right? But Paul says, I want you to know that most of the others, they're seeing me in prison, and the confidence they have in the Lord that he is their security, he is their hope, he is their um, supreme um, ruler, he is, if you will, their identity, he said it's become even greater in them, so that they're not afraid anymore. In fact, two things. He said they become more bold and they become fearless in the gospel. Hey, let me ask you a question. You'll be fearless in the gospel? I do. I'm serious. I want to walk, walk up to the big motorcycle guy that we think just, you know, would crush us if we shared Jesus with him. I just want to be an individual who's willing to build a relationship and say, hey, listen, man, the only way you're going to find out in this life is the gospel. I want to be fearless. I want my boys, Michael and Nathan, right here in front of me. I want them one day to be fearless in the gospel in such a way that if they see a trail that can be blazed for the gospel, even if it costs them limbs off of their body, that they'll say, I'm fearless for the gospel. I'm willing to lose my life for Jesus Christ. That's what Paul's saying about That's these right. men. <laughs> He's saying the evil circumstances that you suppose are hindering the gospel, that other people are attempting to hinder the gospel, I want you to know it is emboldening. It is giving the believers a fearless attitude to proclaim the gospel to the nations, so much so that they're willing to die to preach the word. That's revival, by the way. You see, revival doesn't always come like we expect it. It doesn't always come when we're sitting in padded pews and enjoying the time together. Sometimes it comes at the cost of God's believers spilling their blood for the gospel. You say, no, it doesn't. Yes, it does. In fact, there's an Old Testament testimony that when revival came, Israel was taken over by an enemy. You would think God would give them back their land. But listen, that wasn't important. What was important is them experiencing the living God. That's what was important. What was important is them serving the king regardless of the circumstances. And that's what's important to us. Or at least should be. You see, with the Apostle Paul, here's what's important to him. It's in the last phrase of verse 14, and then I'll close. He says that by my chains, the brethren are much more confident in the Lord to speak boldly the word without fear. You see, Paul wasn't concerned about being delivered from prison as much as he was that the word of God was preached. His desire was so much. Now listen, please, if you, if you miss anything I've said this morning, don't miss this. What was so consuming to the Apostle Paul was that Christ was so satisfying. Christ was so pleasing in his inmost being. His deepest desires found their satisfaction in Jesus in such a way that he wanted the entire world to know that in Christ you can be redeemed. In Christ you can enjoy pleasures forevermore. In Christ, you can be satisfied. That's what he wanted them to know. That's what he wanted the world to know. Therefore, in the midst of being in prison, writing a letter to his supreme supporters, he says this. They're much more bold to speak the word without fear. Because that's what's important. Not my freedom, Paul says. Not me being the center of attention, but rather 
the clear preaching and teaching of the Word of God. Why? Because the Word of God rightly preached is Christ exalted. The Word of God rightly preached shows the supreme beauty of who Jesus Christ is. And that's what Paul was concerned with. Here's a couple of challenges for us this morning. First, I would say this. We must be willing to submit ourselves to find Christ as supremely satisfying so that in evil circumstances we can enjoy it. Would you submit your life to Christ being the supreme ruler and satisfaction this morning? Lay aside every other thing you've ever been taught by the outside world and say, Christ, in you I can be satisfied. Secondly, I would say this. We must.